0: Preach through books of the Bible. Uh, that's our sort of normal pattern for um, for, for pr- our preaching schedule. Uh, we generally alternate Old Testament, New Testament. We, I try to alternate length of books. I try to sort of think through all of those uh, sorts of things. What are the needs we have? Uh, where have we been? And how what can we you know how can we build on that from other places? Uh, so that's our normal pattern, is to preach through books. Every now and then, we take breaks from that. We, um, it may be one Sunday, it may be a few Sundays. Uh, when we finish the book of Ruth, we uh, preach the sermon on the doctrine of God's providence in the book of Ruth. Uh, in 2017, sort of recognizing the the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 uh, theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, sort of the the thing we look to as the start of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, We spent uh, five Sundays on the five solas of the Reformation. So there are times when we take a break from our normal pattern and we preach topics. We preach some doctrine that arises from um from god's word by the way all those sermons are available on our website if you're so inclined i think you may have to do some digging but they're there um i, I suppose i should also say a, a, a short word about the word doctrine sometimes people bristle at the word doctrine we we, we had this sort of built-in kind of uh animosity towards the idea of the word doctrine the word doctrine simply means teaching so if you believe the Bible teaches anything, you believe doctrine. Um, doctrine is not a bad word. It's just an unusual word. Um, and it's not usually doctrine that causes trouble. It's, it's wrong doctrine or wrongly held doctrine or holding to truths and, and being mean about it that uses, usually causes uh, trouble. Um, so there's no reason to, to bristle at the term doctrine. Here's why I'm saying all this. Our series through the book of Exodus has raised a question. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it. Because I haven't exactly called a ton of attention to it so far. Uh, but it's been literally every sermon, every passage from chapter 4 Until, and we we finished last week, we did the last half of six and the first half of seven, and we're about to step into those plagues. And it will be everywhere in, uh, in those chapters. So you're literally looking at eight, nine chapters where the theme of God's sovereignty keeps coming up over and over and over again and the reality is there may not be a a doctrine that gives us more comfort or that causes more conflict than this idea of God's sovereignty it is either the the a great source of comfort to us and it may then turn around and cause Conflict with other people uh, right on the heels of that. And so this morning, I want to to take up this, um, the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. What does the Bible say about sovereignty? Which means this. Do not put your Bible away. Uh, Your best sword drill days... Are not behind you. They are ahead of you, uh, and you're going to put them to the test this morning. Uh, so you, we're we're, we're not going to read one passage and stick with that passage. We're going to read several passages uh, and go from there. We want to understand um, uh, what God's word has to say about God's sovereignty. Uh, the first uh, question I think we have to ask is, what is it? Uh, what, is, what is sovereignty? What do we mean when we say that word? How are we supposed to understand God's sovereignty? W- what we mean is that God has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. We, we, okay, we're, we're Americans. We don't know what to do with sovereigns. We rebelled against them. We threw that off a couple of hundred years ago. And yet, if you've watched The Crown, uh, if you've watched any of the, the, the British shows that have been coming up lately, uh, you know that they call the, the king, the queen, they call the person with the crown, they call them the sovereign. It's supposed to mean that they have the right and the power, the authority and the power To do what they please within their realm. Ah, there's the limit. Only within their realm. Of course, the other limit is, then what does Parliament do? Like, more and more, you're kind of watching and think the crown is really just a figurehead. Like, there's really not a whole lot of right or power resting on the throne in Britain these days. But what we mean is that God has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. You want evidence? Look at our call to worship. Did you, did you notice? This is why I chose Daniel 4 for our call to worship this morning. These are the words we used for our call to worship. The words of Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon. Not an Israelite, not somebody who's, who's Jewish, not a king of Israel, not a, a descendant of David. We used the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who actually took Judah into exile. In other words, there is no greater earthly king at that time than Nebuchadnezzar. But what does he say? I bless the Most High. I praise and honor Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay His hand. Nobody has the power or the strength to look Yahweh in the face and say, you can't do that. Or say to Him, what have you done? When we're talking about God's sovereignty, we mean that He has the right and the power to do whatever He pleases. Even Nebuchadnezzar ultimately came to that understanding. But notice the psalmist also. Turn to Psalm 115. Let me just show you a a, a couple of passages where the psalmist does it a little more succinctly than, um, than Nebuchadnezzar does. Psalm 115. Psalm 115 begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Well, here's the answer. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Or, just skip ahead to Psalm 135. And we'll see this again. Psalm 135, verses uh, 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Did you hear? There's, there's the Bible's own definition of God's sovereignty. He has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. Or you could, you could steal from verse 5. of of psalm 135 or you could steal from nebuchadnezzar and say that there is no greater power or authority to be found anywhere the heavens the earth the sea the deeps you can climb the highest mountain you can scuba dive to the bottom of marianna's trench and you'll find no greater power or authority anywhere so the Bible tells us that God's sovereignty is simply that he has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. It makes sense, though, doesn't it? I mean, I think in many ways, most Christians would say, OK, yeah, I'll buy that. And, and for that matter, it, it kind of makes sense that he has the right and the power to do what he pleases. If you were going to build a house, some of you have actually done this. Some of you are crazy enough to do this. Uh, if you were going to build out, and I don't mean have it built. I mean get out there and actually build it yourself. You don't go out in your backyard. or You don't go out on this, your piece of property and just start randomly pouring concrete and setting up lumber and, and guessing as you go along. Because that would lead to total chaos. That would lead to walls that don't connect. A slab that's not big enough or way too big. Corners that aren't corners; they're more like round rooms. You have to sort of make it up as you go. Hallways that aren't even there because the walls don't line up right. The studs didn't line up in the right place. You don't you don't design you don't plan on building a house and just randomly haphazardly go out to the lot and and pour concrete and start setting up lumber as though this is going to be sufficient if you can oversimplify it a little bit builders need architects and architects need builders when you when you go out to build a building if you go out to build a house you have to first have a plan, and then you need to know what you need in order to make that happen, to execute that plan. Builders need architects because architects tell you this is the design. This is what you're going to build. A builder without an architect is, is well, chaos, and disarray, and haphazard, and and not even... Not even, you know, it comes up with a design that is no design at all. But an architect without a builder. And the work never gets done. The Bible shows us that God is both architect and builder. He has intended, he has designed creation from the very beginning. And and as the creator, he has the right and the power to bring his plan to fruition. He is both architect and builder. And I think the reality is most Christians would agree with that. Most Christians hear God is sovereign, and the vast majority of us go, yeah. And okay. Like I don't okay, I don't disagree with that. Let's go home. Like, where's the but then if you start to ask, well. Over what? If you were to make a list of the things that God is sovereign over, what would be on the list? Or perhaps to ask it another way, what would not be? What are the places where you say, well, hold on. Yes, I know he's sovereign, but it's only over the big things. The little things, not so much. I mean, really, does he really have time for, you know, rain during harvest season does he really have time for for holding off the rain when we kind of need the rain i mean does he really have time for that he's got such big things to deal with does he really have time for the the details what about storms what about 9 11 what about the salvation of sinners or what about despotic rulers scattered throughout the globe is he sovereign over those things and most of us when Faced with those questions, we start to hem and haul. because they make us nervous. I mean, can we say God is sovereign if Hitler's the ruler of Germany? That's the question. Is there anything outside of His control? We've said, we've answered the question: What is sovereignty? What do we mean by that word? Is there anything outside of His control? Surely some of you are already thinking of Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, verse 28 is a comfort to most of us at some point in time or another. At some time in our lives we will run to Romans 8, 28 and find there peace and comfort in trials. Notice what verse 28 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Did you hear it? All things work together for good for his people and For God's glory. And so the question is. What do we mean all things? See I wonder how many of us read that verse. And the timeline in our head. Is more like this. Something bad happened. God didn't see it coming. Or it's something bad that God wouldn't have wanted to happen. And so now I'm dealing with this, this difficulty or this struggle or this strife, this conflict in my life. God didn't see it coming or a good, loving God wouldn't have wanted this. And so now, God has to come behind that event and make something good out of it. I wonder how many of us, that's the timeline. We think of Romans 8.28 akin to clean up on aisle five. But is that what Scripture teaches us. We tend to think that God reacts to events to make something good come out of them even though He would never have wanted those events to have happened anyway. Alan Cameron was a Scottish covenanter put to death in 1680 by Charles II. Uh, Charles wanted to get rid of Presbyterians, um, and, uh, and, and so he was basically putting these Scottish covenanters to death, um, and in 1680, Alan Cameron was killed in Edinburgh. Before he was killed, he, um, a couple of the king's henchmen, just to use that word, um, showed up in his cell and dumped a sack out on the floor in front of him. And, and out fell a head and two hands. And they asked Alan, do you know them? This is Alan's response. I know them. I know them. They're my son's. My dear sons, it is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. I don't know that I could look at a sack with my son's head in it and say, good is the Lord. But that's a man who understood that God makes all things, works all things together for good, even this heinous martyrdom of his son. And, and that head, those hands were on their way to a gate on High Street in Edinburgh where the, the heads of, of Scottish covenanters were frequently put up on top of this gate as a warning. This is what we do to people who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ and Him alone for their salvation and who argue for freedom in worship. That's trust in God's sovereignty. That's someone who can look at all things and say God works all things together for good and He goes, yes, that actually includes my son's martyred death. So what are the all things? What's included in that list? Turn to Job chapter 37. We'll kind of go from the smallest to the greatest. We'll work our way up from kind of the the least, the tiniest things to the greater things. Job 37. Look at verse 6. Actually, read verse 5. God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow He says, fall on the earth. I wish He would say it more. Yes. I would love for Him to say, fall on Athens a little more than He does. Yes. Fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour. We get too many of those. His mighty downpour. He, he, fall, he tells the snow, fall on the earth. He tells the downpour, the rain, fall on the earth. Look down at verse 10. By the breath of God, ice is given. The broad waters are frozen fast. In other words, weather. The rain that we get. The snow that we don't get. Are all at God's command. I'm going to be honest with you. The thing I don't like about living in Athens... This is one. And it's not y'all. And it's, it's tornadoes. I'm not real keen on... I mean, like, I'm hearing, hey, we're, you know, tomorrow's a first alert weather day. And I'm already in panic mode. Like, I'm, I got 24 hours. It doesn't matter. The heart's racing, floating, I'm making... you are trying to figure out, right, hold on. The closet cleaned out. Can we get in the bathroom? Who's here? We got the dogs. We got... We Can, can we get everybody in? Like, I'm already kind of... I don't... I'm not a fan. But what Job tells me is the very tornadoes that make their way through this town are God's tornadoes. They are under his power and authority. Which means that at some level, my fear of tornadoes is doubt of God's power and authority and his wisdom in those storms. Look at Proverbs 21. Okay, so, so weather is under God's control. Uh, but that's not the only thing. Look at Prover- Proverbs 21, verse 1. The, heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me God was actually in control when Hitler came to power? Right? We, we do this. We, we look around and go, "Well, you know, God's will wasn't done because the right person wasn't elected, or God's will was done because the right, the right person was elected, and, and if the other person was then, God wouldn't have been in that because surely God wouldn't want this person in charge." Surely God. This tells us, the rulers of the Earth. God holds the hearts of the rulers of the Earth. And he guides and directs them wherever they will. We won't even read Proverbs 16, which says, you throw dice, God controls the outcome. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as, as randomness. There's no such thing as just plain dumb luck. Or, or, or think about this for, for Some of you, this might be easier than others, right? But in, in Matthew 10, we're told that God knows every sparrow in your backyard and every hair on your head. Some of you might be able to count those. Others, not so much. But God knows them all. God's in control over all of them. God has the right and the power to do as he pleases. The the tiniest of details, the snow, the rain, the tornadoes, a sparrow, which, I mean, you sell two of them for a penny, Matthew tells us. I mean, they're cheap. They're a dime a dozen. And, and God knows every single one of them that falls to the earth. Okay, so if these... If he's in control of the little things, of the sort of minutia, the details of life, what about the big sort of important things? Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, we won't read the whole chapter. I don't even really have time to read. Start in verse uh, 6. Uh, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended of Israel from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. By the way, that was a promise. That's a quote of what God told Abraham. In other words, Isaac, your, the offspring is coming through Isaac, uh, not through Ishmael. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promises, promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah... Okay, now we're at Isaac's kids, right? When Rebekah, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. While the twins were still in the womb, God told their mother, by the way, the first one that comes out is Esau. He's not the one. The second one, the younger uh, uh, Jacob, he is the one. He's the one I've chosen, I've determined that the line, this descendants, these the offspring, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis three fifteen will come through Jacob. God was determining even beforehand which child would be the ancestor of Jesus. God's an architect, so he has a plan. God's a builder. So he acts according to that plan and nothing is haphazard or reactive or responsive. God is never caught off guard. It it makes sense though, right? If we need a redeemer and he leaves everything up to chance, we're not guaranteed Jesus. The Old Testament saints have to hope against hope that Jesus will come unless God is marching history towards the promised Messiah. Because God is an architect, He has a plan, and His his work in this world isn't haphazard or reactive. But also, because He's holy, He can't sin, and He can't cause us to sin. That's James 1, verses 12-15. to What is sovereignty? To what does His sovereignty extend? And there are... Countless other passages we could turn to. But finally, I want to ask this question. What does all this have to do with Exodus? Why does this come up seemingly randomly now, Jeff, in the middle of Exodus 7? It's not really the middle of Exodus 7 that brings it up. It's what's coming next. It's, It's the ten plagues that we're about to deal with Turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. And I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 13, down through verse 2 of chapter 10. Yes, I'm picked up in the seventh place. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me for this time. I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. and then whoever feared the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into, into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff. Toward heaven, And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down uh, to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the uh, field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail? Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron Said to him, and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Then Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Did you hear it? Did you hear God's sovereignty in just in that passage alone? We've actually seen it starting back in chapter 4. Over and over again, we have read God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Imagine being Moses for a minute. I know technically he was told. And technically, because of that, he should have known. But put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You're out in the wilderness tending to some sheep, minding your own business when this burning bush calls you and says, Hey, I need you to go back to Egypt and I need you to deliver my people out of Egypt. Why, in Moses' mind, why are we still in Egypt? Why are we still here? Like, so God calls me, says, go back because I want my people out of Egypt. And then he hardens Pharaoh's heart not to let his people out of Egypt. You see his dilemma? You see our dilemma? Like, we tend to think, well, wait, hang on, surely God's purpose is to make everything easy and right for me, because that's really what he wants. I mean, if he really wanted the people out of Egypt, he would just, and they would be out. You snap your fingers, the Egyptians are all dead. You don't have to do that. Let the Egyptians, let there be no Egyptians. Right? We'll, we'll paraphrase Genesis 1. Let there be no Egyptians, all dead, Israel's free. Boom. Didn't even need Moses to go back. So why on earth harden Pharaoh's heart? You know, the reality is we ask why questions of God all the time and we rarely get an answer. Think about it, you you wrestle with difficulty or struggle or some sort of conflict in your life and you are on your knees, you're bawling your eyes out, you're crying, why? Why this? Why that? Why this disease? Why that death? Why that person? Why not? You don't usually get answers to why questions. We have three answers to this why question. I want you to notice why on earth does God harden Pharaoh's heart? There are actually three reasons in verses 13 to 17, which we just read a few minutes ago. Look at verse 14. For this time I will send plagues on you, yourself, and your servants, your people, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. One of the reasons God hardens Pharaoh's heart is, is to remind Pharaoh and the Egyptians, your son God, he's not real. The Nile River that you worship, yeah, also not a God. Pharaoh that you think is all powerful and, and who is God that I should wor- worship him? I don't know who that is. I'm not going to abide back by- Pharaoh, not a God. Part of God's point is to remind his people and those outside of his church, outside of his kingdom, outside of Israel, to inform the Egyptians, all those gods that you worship, they're fake. They're idols. They're false gods. There isn't one. He's teaching Pharaoh what Nebuchadnezzar learns a different way. His dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. His kingdom is everywhere and no one can, can question him and no one can stay his hand. Nebuchadnezzar learns it in a, a more interesting way, you might add. I mean, you might go read the first few chapters of Daniel and watch Nebuchadnezzar go crazy and then come back again. So the first reason for God hardening Pharaoh's heart is to inform the Egyptians you worship idols. There's a second reason. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 10. This reason is given to Moses and to the Israelites that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Do you hear it? God hardened Pharaoh's heart for us. You see the reality is we are going to go through times in our lives when when rulers come to power and and they are dead set on destroying the church. They want they want Christ gone, they want his followers gone, they want them perhaps even put to death. What do you need in that moment? You need a reminder that there is no ruler on earth greater than God. You need a reminder that, oh wait, God's already been through this. He's already overthrown rulers who claimed almighty power over the church and wanted to destroy God and His people. He's already proven His power and authority over them. So I can read about these plagues. I can read about the deliverance of Israel. And I can be strengthened and encouraged. And then there's a third reason. Chapter 14. I turn to Exodus 14, uh, verse four. "I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host." Look at verse 17, "And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh." Look at verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. The third reason is that God would be glorified. That men and women and boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and nation, whether Israel or Egypt, would be driven to their knees to say there is no other God like him. There is no one like Him in all of creation. How do we apply a truth like this to us? Let me just make three applications. Um, the first is, is this. I um, took it from a, a story this past week. R.C. Sproul, uh, one of the classes he used to teach um, at RTS, uh, he used to begin one of his classes with this question. He would start... With this. this is, imagine walking into a seminary class and this being the question Is God in control of every single molecule in the universe? And I think most of us would say, Well, yes. And then events happen and we go, Well, hold on, time out. I don't know about that one. And he goes on to explain um, the answer doesn't determine if you're a Christian or a Muslim, but it will determine if you're a theist. Or an atheist. Do you see his distinction? If there is one molecule in all of creation. Outside of God's control. Then God is not God. If there is one molecule in all of creation. Outside of God's control. That could end up being the molecule. That thwarts God's plan. That prevents the birth of Jesus. That prevents the, the accomplishing of All of God's purposes. The God of heaven and earth. The God of the Bible has foreordained. Whatsoever comes to pass. And he's orchestrating all those things. According to his wisdom. And his purpose. Because he alone is sovereign. Second application. That doctrine should drive us. To peace and comfort. Imagine a world. Where you get caught off guard. A world where you are caught by surprise all the time. Imagine a world where things happen in this life you didn't see coming. And quite honestly, you'd rather they not. But the God you serve is never like that. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing caught him napping. Nothing sort of happened without Him knowing about it. Imagine a universe where your sickness, your car wreck, your cancer, your relationship struggles, your fears, your tornadoes, where all of those things are under God's power and authority. The doctrine of God's sovereignty drives away fear and replaces it with peace and comfort. Because the God who loves us and cares for us is never caught off guard. And finally, let me make this application. Because God is sovereign, your salvation is safe and secure. Jesus says, the Father, all that the Father has given me, I've, I've saved, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. If God's not sovereign, someone could take you from the hand of Jesus. Maybe even you yourself. But because God is sovereign, because he's in control, because he orders all things according to his perfect, infinite wisdom and purpose, your salvation is guaranteed. What hope do you have for eternity? the fact that there is no greater being in all of creation than God Himself. No one can stay His hand and no one can ask Him, can demand of Him, what on earth are you doing? We look to Christ. We find in Him a a worthy Redeemer, a worthy Savior, a perfect substitute for us in His Righteous obedience, and in light of our disobedience, a blood sacrifice shed so that we might bathe and wash and be made clean. And because God is sovereign, no one can take that away from you. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are in control, we thank you that you uh, rule and reign over all of your creation. Uh, and that you are bringing about your plans according to your infinite perfect wisdom and power and, and love. And we pray that your name would truly be exalted in all the earth. And that those outside of the church, those outside of your kingdom uh, would know that they're worshiping idols, they're worshiping false gods, that you alone are uh, the, the, the one almighty powerful creator, sustainer of all that is. That we inside the church would be reminded all over again that you've delivered your people before. You can do it again should the need arise. We pray that your name would be glorified in our lives and in this world. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.